uh, my parents' generation, people would say things like, like this, attend the church of your choice. There's uh, some variations on that phrase, but that's really uh, the gist of it. And lots of fun people would say things to that effect. Uh, these are people you might love to have as your neighbor, uh, but they seem to think that the primary thing of importance is that one go to church. What kind of church you go to is basically uh, inconsequential. Or maybe they, they might broaden that out even more because to evoke a church is too classically Christian. So instead they might say something like, today, uh, people might say something like, well, what's important is that a person has faith. It's never specified exactly what a person should have faith in. Uh, in fact, the implication is that it's not really important what you have faith in, uh, just so long as you have faith in something, faith in anything. Well, that idea has about a hundred problems with it, but the first and foremost is that the church is never treated like that in Scripture. It's never treated with flippancy. Or to restate that in the positive, every major figure in the New Testament, including Christ himself, speaks about the church as something that's vitally important, as something that's sacred, bride of God, as we'll discuss. So anyone who's been studying the Bible for very long will understand that the church is of utmost importance to God, and therefore it better be of utmost importance to us as well. So that's why I brought this lesson before you. What is the church? And it's going to be a quick overview. We're not obviously going to exhaust the subject of what is the church, but we're going to uh, uh, give you a few different ways of thinking about this question. So in the Bible, when we look at the way that the Bible talks about the first century church, we really... Uh, we see that the church talked about in kind of two senses. And these uh, terms that we'll discuss aren't explicitly used in the scriptures, um, but we can uh, intuit them based on the context around uh, these passages. Let's look at, for example, at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter. Uh, toward the end of the chapter, verse uh, 37, uh, tells us of the first... Uh, uh, this chapter has told us of the first gospel sermon, and now we're seeing the first mass conversion. So in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone from the uh, from the Lord our God, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, say, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added about that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so the first sense of, of the church in scripture that we see is the universal sense, right? We see that clearly when it says that they were added to the church about 3,000 souls. But, of course, the group that was gathered there on, on Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost uh, were from a lot of different localities, right? They, they had actually specifically traveled there for the relig Jewish religious observance of Pentecost. And when they heard this gospel sermon, it says they were cut to the heart and, and responded. So what church were they added to? What were those 3,000 souls added to? They were added to the global body of believers uh, everywhere, all those who are in Christ. 
And what's cool about that is that the body that we're added to when we obey Christ today is the same that they were added to in Acts chapter 2. And the universal church doesn't have a membership directory the way we might think of a local church having. But uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that God knows those who are his. All right, and then the other way that, that, that the church has talked about in Acts, when we, when we get these accounts of the earliest Christian gatherings, the early church, uh, immediately after Pentecost, turn to Acts chapter 14, just a few chapters later. Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, so the word church there can't be used in the same sense as Acts chapter 2 because all these people from all these different localities were added to the church in Acts chapter 2. But here in Acts chapter 14, uh, elders are appointed in every church. So we're talking about one church in Acts chapter 2, and every church in Acts chapter 14. Has the church been divided? No, of course not. They're talking about every church in every specific locality where Christians spread. And that's what the local church is. The local church is simply the group of Christians in a certain location who uh, associate together for worship and edification. It's not that we, we wouldn't love to worship and commune with all the saints everywhere, but from the beginning, it's made sense for Christians to organize themselves locally. In fact, God knew that Christians would organize themselves this way, and he intended for them to do so. This is why uh, we get specific instructions from the governance of the local church in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, and in Titus and other places when we look at qualifications for uh, elders and deacons, uh, those who are need to govern the local church. All right, so I think we understand that relatively well. Before we get to what exactly the church is, though, I think we need to do away with a few big misconceptions uh, in a section I'm going to call what the church is not, right? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And we will come back to Ephesians chapter 4 in just a minute, but I want to read the first section of Ephesians uh, chapter 4 here. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, uh, hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing we can say that the church is certainly not from this passage is that the, the church is not a modern religious denomination. You know, much of this church of your choice attitude uh, that we saw pop up uh, uh, over the last hundred years is, is rooted in a real exhaustion that's come to pass uh, in American culture uh, with the plurality of self-professed self-professed Christian groups today. Uh, there is a, a variety uh, to suit every kind of fancy of Christianity uh, today. Uh, let's, let's look at John chapter 17, 
John chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 20. Here we see our Lord praying for those who would believe on him in the future. John chapter 17 and verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you. That, that they may also be in us, so that the world uh, may believe that you have sent me. The, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They may be one, even as we are. I in them, I in them, and you in me. That they may be, become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me, and I love them, even as you loved me. So, I came from a town where, when somebody asked you, um, what's your What's your religion? Where do you go to church? There is like five or six reasonable answers, right? And you can probably guess the, the major groups, right? Uh, but even in, you know, a limited palette, uh, let's say, of church choices, uh, let's even if we limited it to five or six, that's still uh, at least five more churches than Christ prayed for in John chapter 17. Don't mistake my point. I'm not uh, here saying rah-rah, we're the church, and these other people aren't. But if you have, uh, if you've read John chapter 17, and you ask yourself how many bodies of believers Christ prayed for, uh, you know, if, if you had someone who'd never looked at it, read this passage, and you ask them, how many bodies of believers did Christ pray for? And they, uh, they, they would have to say one, because that's the only thing you can take away from this text. It's obvious that there's only one body of believers uh, Christ is praying for there. He explicitly prays for them to be unified. That's the central theme of the prayer. So any reasonable person can see there's no way all these different groups can be contained within the church because they're all too different, both from each other and from the model of the church that we see in Scripture. But there are some other ideas as well about, about the church. The church is not a tool for combating social ill. Um, much of the reason for the rampant division in the broader Christian landscape is just a simple misunderstanding of God's purpose for the church. Uh, there was a, a, a movement that arose in the mid to late 19th century called the Social Gospel Movement, uh, and this was a religious slash political movement uh, that posited that because all Christians are instructed to care for the poor and the stranger and the less fortunate, uh, that this means that it's the church the church's responsibility to care for the downtrodden, marginalized of the broad society. Right? Churches in massive numbers and of all stripes started creating charities, uh, orphan, orphan homes, widows' homes, nursing homes, uh, outreach to the homeless, outreach for those with drug and alcohol addictions. And while all of these, I'm sure we can agree, are, are nobly intentioned causes, uh, nobly intentioned causes, some of them extremely noble, um, but they're not the driving purpose of the church described in Scripture. What is that purpose? Let's look at Ephesians, back, back to Ephesians, uh, starting in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended 
is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. The work of the church isn't delivering people from the unfortunate circumstances of life. Because the church sees beyond this life. The church is a part of that train of captives that Paul talks about following our Lord to heaven. The church is not a country club. Uh, turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. James, uh, he warns us about the dangers of judging in our hearts uh, and uh, making ourselves judges over our fellow believers. James chapter 2, starting at verse 1 through verse 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes and shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? As wrong as the, the, those social gospel reformers were about the gospel message, there's another vision of the church that's just as wrong. Uh, and that is the view that the church is where I go to hang out with my friends. Church is where everybody's like me, and I like everybody, right? No. You know, this is going to come up again, but the church is not about each one of us individually, about gratifying each one of us individually. And worship is not a place you should go if you're expecting to be comfortable and unchallenged. This isn't a country club. We're not here to agree with each other uh, and be golfing. We're here to serve. God, the creator of heaven and earth. The church is not a political party or some kind of echo chamber. Um, you know, people say you shouldn't talk about politics or religion in, in polite company. And, and the reason they say that is because the two tend to be linked, although not always in obvious ways. Um, there are sometimes that the religious becomes the political and sometimes the political becomes the religious. And we can probably imagine some things that apply in both of those camps, but to avoid being too political, we won't go into it. What I'm saying is, let's use extreme discretion when we're sharing our views on controversial topics. Sometimes it's worth the fight, most of the time it's not. The mission of the church was never political. Uh, uh, the fact, uh, in fact, uh, Christ dismissed rumors about him assuming a political kingship. You can see that in John chapter 18, if you want to look at that, where he says, my kingdom is not this world, and if it were, my servants would fight. But more than that, the church is not even a self-help a self group. It's not about each one of us individually, as I've already said. 
And, you know, we live in a, in a self-centered culture. Uh, I wouldn't be the first one to make that critique. I'm not immune to it. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who's had some, um, I've had some particular struggles with, with, with uh, certain mental illness. And, you know, I've needed a lot of help. And it's taken a lot of work over several years to put together the amazing me that stands before you. Uh, but I know we're all bigger. We, we, we've all got struggles, right? And everybody's struggle is is the most important thing in the world to them, right? Uh, so let's not be in the business of comparing ourselves to each other. But But what we're doing here is bigger than any one of us. What we're doing here is bigger than whatever personal struggles we're going through. It's bigger than financial troubles. It's bigger than whatever it is about ourselves that we want to fix. Even though, and see, this is the part where it gets tricky, because even though it's not a self-help group, it will help you more than any other group you can join. So why is that? How is that? I mean, that, th there's a group for everything in the time that we live in. There's, you know, Support groups for uh, widows, support groups for people with certain illnesses. There's, you know, uh, uh, AA meetings that people can go to if they've had substance abuse problems. There's cancer support groups. But the, the church, the church that Christ died for, the body of Christ, is the one group that's expressed goal is repairing your soul, fixing your soul. Proving your soul. All right, so those are some things that the church is not. Now that I'm almost out of time, we'll quickly run through what the church is. But I, I, I I'm going to run through some some verses here, um, and I'm not going to turn to all of them. But I encourage you to 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 look at these um, and view them in your own time because there's essentially limitless passages in the New Testament about the value of, of the church. But I, I've narrowed a list of uh, a dozen or so uh, ways of conceptualizing the church. First one, the church is the bride of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, verse 29, uh, Paul says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So as a man loves his wife, Christ died for the church and gave himself for her. We're a royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We're consecrated. We're a living sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are a family. And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
That's in uh, that's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. Christ referring to those who believed on him as his true family. And Christ is someone who can legitimately claim God as a family member, and he chooses the company of the believers, the ones who would believe on him. Here is my mother and my brother and my sister. It's Bible-based. We are guided by uh, the scripture that is God-breathed, right? We see uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given for our inspiration, uh, is inspired by God, or God-breathed and given for teaching, instruction, and for correction and righteousness. And we, we see that the church is God-centered. There's this idea, even in the Old Testament, that that uh, God should be the center point of our focus, uh, of the focus of a truly moral and righteous life. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The church is focused also squarely on Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As Christians, we look to God the Father, and we also look to God the Son, the Christ, and we see his righteousness displayed in his life. That's the righteousness we're seeking. And all these things, and essentially everything else, will be added to you if we make that the focus of our lives. Church is a collection of sinners. First Corinthians chapter six, verse eleven, it says, after after Paul's just gone through this long list of of sins, right? Murderers, thieves, sexually immoral, idolaters, you name it, it's in that list in First Corinthians six. And then in, at the end of that list, in First Corinthians six, verse eleven, Paul says, And such were some of you washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're also, we're a collection of sinners, but we're also a collection of Christ followers. See that in, in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, uh, in verse, uh, uh, I got ahead of myself in that verse. Hold on, hold on on that verse. We're, we're not just a collection of sinners, but we're a collection of Christ followers. We're a collection of people who have been remade in the image of Christ, that he is the mold that we're following. All right. We're also, the church is also a group of people who are commanded to love each other. Let's look now at uh, John uh, 15, uh, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We're commanded to love each other by our Lord and by his example. We're also told in, in, in Hebrews 10, verse 24, we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So not just that we love each other, but that we seek to inspire each other to love more. And finally, the church is a group of people who have great love for the lost. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seeking and saving the lost was the mission of our Savior. How much more should it be our mission if we claim to be those who follow in his example on earth? So, myself in this. Sorry about that, guys. So, Paul states, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and that's what in this lesson. I told you we would tie it back to Ephesians chapter 4. We read through uh, Ephesians, we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I want to pick back up in verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Okay, so Paul states there in the beginning of that verse that the organization of saints into a proper body of believers. It's for the purpose of bringing us to maturity. I said, you know, the church isn't a self-help group, but it's the best thing you can do to help yourself. Um, and this is what I mean. Ephesians 4, verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craft by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So this is how. Paul says it's time to grow up. It's time to stop being children spiritually. It's time to mature, rather than the way of the world, which is to stay a child forever. Christian is called to progress toward the mark of Christ. And it's with the help of Christ's church this is accomplished. So what does that church look like? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. To end our study. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way together into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is our head. We make up the body. This is the simplest and most true way to describe the church. Christ leads us, instructs us, um, and influences us, reforms us each individually, and then we in turn build each other up as one body, unified in vision and purpose behind the ascending Lord who will descend again someday. That's about all I got. This is normally the part where I would offer an invitation, and a week ago uh, that would have been much more straightforward than it is now. But what I'm going to do is say that the function of an invitation still still um, remains needful. Um, there may not be anybody in this room 
who wants to become a Christian tonight. Uh, um, but I, I think everyone here is already Christian. But but the call goes out anyway. And especially, I want to emphasize this part, if there's a spiritual need during this challenge of time, or even uh, a physical need, something that you need your brother to help you out with, don't hesitate to call. Don't hesitate to make that known. This is a strange time for all of us, and we're going to need each other. So if you find yourself um, needing to lean on your fellow Christians uh, during this time, don't hesitate to do that. Either spiritually or physically, communicate. Make your needs known. Um, we're going to try to keep everybody in as close contact as we can through this whole process, but um, we have no way of knowing what, what the end of this is, or how long this goes. Uh, we're playing it day by day. Uh, but that's all of us uh, in every part of our spiritual life. We're just trying to take one day at a time, grow closer uh, to the Savior, to the one who's called us. That's what being a Christian is all about, and that's what the aim of the church is. Bring us all to full maturity. Help us be